0: to Bluegrass Stories with Howard Parker and me. I'm Katie Daly. Like many of our guests, Kathy Kallick's first musical influence came from her parents, especially her mom, in her hometown of Chicago. Kathy is a singer-songwriter, Grammy winner, and mentor. And in this episode of Bluegrass Stories, she talks with Howard about her early years in music, California bluegrass, her time with the good old persons, and her years as the bandleader of the Kathy Kallick band.
1: My mom was, you know, both my parents got caught up in the the folk scare and uh, started playing folk guitar. My dad had been a classical guitarist, and my mother had played piano. And they got swept up in folk music when I was a kid. And they were, uh, she was involved in the early days of Old Town School of Folk Music, is what it was called. Yeah, and Old Town School of Folk Music was a place that um you know was all about teaching the playing of instruments to people and then also presenting uh concerts and performances and had a store and it's been going on that store's been you know i can't I don't have the you know date in my mind, but I was a little kid, you know I remember going as a little kid to old town school and seeing things and um going with my mom to um, see performances in clubs in Chicago and my parents taking us to the University of Chicago Folk Festival every year. So I was exposed to a lot of different types of folk music and uh, my mom was you know in the folk music of that time learning songs from all different kinds of, of backgrounds you know Irish music English music American music you know just anything that she was exposed to and she saw um Frank Prophet play the Dulcimer, I think at probably at University of Chicago Folk Festival, and fell in love with that instrument. And it became kind of popular in Chicago area with other folk musicians playing it. George and Jerry Armstrong played Dulcimer. And my mom got a dulcimer that was made by Frank Prophet. And she taught guitar as well as Dulcimer at the Old Town School throughout through in those years. She was a, a big influence on me and a great source of of material for me. You know, songs for me. And
2: and she was your first uh, guitar teacher, I would imagine.
1: You know, she taught me some stuff, and my dad taught me some stuff. Um, they both, you know, uh, had an influence on me. They got me a guitar. I I think when I was 10, uh, for Christmas, and my dad got me two LPs, Charlie Bird and Doc Watson. And he said, I think if you listen to these two records, you're going to find that your taste lies more in one than the other. <laughs> A very scientific approach, you know, that's, that's my dad. And uh, and and I loved that Doc Watson record. I was, you know, I like the Charlie Bird record too, but I wanted to play those songs from the Doc Watson record. Yeah,
2: yeah. And and I guess it didn't lead to you, it lead you into covering any Ella Fitzgerald tunes or anything like that. Um,
1: not not exactly. I have had you know, like a lot of people, little dabbles into different styles. Um, this swing style of music is. You know, has been very popular on the West Coast, and a lot of the musicians I play with are fabulous swing musicians. So I've you know learned a couple of songs to sing in jam sessions or you know stuff like that. I like to sing the song "You're Just Too Marvelous for Words."
2: <laughs> That's an old classic. Yeah. <laughs> so your your first uh, performance uh, uh, exposure was in the Chicago area.
1: Yeah, I play. I, I got up and sang with my mom some um, when she was performing. She performed in uh, coffee houses and and concerts and small festivals and stuff in Illinois and in, in the Chicago area. And there was a club that she uh, was the first person to play music in this coffee house called the No Exit Coffee House. And she talked to the owner into having a, an open mic on sunday and and she i think hosted it in the beginning I, i'm saying this from my memory because i was a little kid and my brother and i would have a drawing pad and they would make us a hot chocolate and you know we would sit and watch the open mic sort of hoot nanny type thing on sunday afternoons and that was the venue where i started getting up and singing with her and then that was the first place that i performed as a solo folk musician which I did for, you know, first couple of years when I started playing in Chicago. But when I moved to California to the Bay Area, I got all caught up in this bluegrass thing.
2: Yeah. Now, before moving on to uh, to the Bay Area, what was, you, you mentioned dad was a musician as well. What What was he up to at the time?
1: Well, my dad is an applied mathematician, and he was working at Illinois Institute of Technology building gigantic computers. And um, also played classical guitar and recorder. And um, so, it was a, you know, it was a pretty musical household. Um, he didn't play folk music so much, but he loved it. And he, you know, loves to sing some of those songs. He um, he loves to sing uh, Wayfaring Stranger. And, you know, he's a very musical guy. But my mom was the performer.
2: College brought you to the West Coast?
1: Mm-hmm. I came to go to San Francisco Art Institute. I um, decided I wanted to go to art school, and I applied to Chicago Art Institute and um, San Francisco, and I thought, well, if I stay in Chicago, I'm just going to be distracted by music. So I think I'll go to California where I can really concentrate on painting. But wherever you go, there you are. And I was trying to get into the Bluegrass Club Paul Saloon, early on when I moved here, um, you know, sneaking in before I turned 21 and then (laughs) went there on my 21st birthday. And Paul Lampert, the owner of Paul saloon, bought me a drink and I was particularly swept away by the singing of Pat Enright.
2: Ooh. Yep.
1: Um, in a band called phantoms of the Opry. And I just wanted to go and see that band whenever I could. And, uh, you know, just I, I loved his singing so much.
2: So, what 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 was the rest of the um, the the bluegrass music scene um, like in the Bay Area? What, was it? What, was it large or, or or was it pretty pretty focused on a couple of venues?
1: Well, there weren't a whole lot of uh, venues at that time. Paul Saloon had bluegrass seven nights a week. Um, so, you know, and I lived in San Francisco, so it was easy for me to go there. There the Freight and Salvage Coffee House, which is still um going strong in Berkeley, uh was another place to go and that was a more focused performance venue, more of a concert venue and there there were things clubs that would pop up for a couple of years, restaurants would have music um there was a pizza parlor uh not far from the Freight and Salvage in the East Bay that um, the good old persons played in starting in 1975. And and that pizza parlor had bluegrass increasing number of nights a week for maybe 10 years, long, pretty long time, maybe more than 10 years. So, you know, for, for a time when the good old person started, we played three nights a week consistently for years, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then Whatever else came along, um, private parties wedding weddings, corporate gigs, you know um, and our bluegrass festival started in seventy six the california bluegrass association father's Day festival, and that was the beginning of a, of a festival scene and the and the first bluegrass festival I ever went to i didn't know what to expect, you know i'd never been to any of those when i lived in the midwest and you know the scene um was healthy it was a strong very traditional uh bluegrass scene in the bay area very monroe-based repertoire uh very influenced by Vern williams and ray park the iconic duo that that played in northern california and and very welcoming to women early on you know very encouraging
2: so how how did you uh transition from becoming a um, uh I wouldn't say a a, a passive listener but a, but a fan to um actively performing uh I mean jumping ahead a little bit of course to the, to the good old persons how how did you manage to uh uh, to meet these other folks um in in the band did you meet them at, um, at the bluegrass festivals or at other local venues and what was the thought process of putting that band together
1: went to a um what was sweets mill sort of a uh, a music camp i guess or of a getaway in the woods people went pe- they weren't really hired. It was just sort of like a, I don't know what you call sweets mill, but I went to it one time before I was performing at all. Um, and I was riding home in the car, sitting next to a woman named Barbara Mendelson, And um, she, nobody knew that I sang or played music because I was just an art student. But she mentioned a song and I said, oh, you mean this one? And I sang a little bit of it. And she said, oh, you're a singer. And I said, well, you know, I have been, but it's not what I'm focused on right now. I'm really trying to learn to be a a painter. But she was getting together with Lori Lewis and uh, Sue Shalaski and Dorothy Baxter. And they were getting together just socially and playing music. And um, they invited me to come and get together with them. And we got together once a week just for fun, and both Dorothy and I played guitar. Uh, I didn't really know how to play bluegrass guitar. I was more of a finger-picking guitarist, and I had been learning to play flat pick to accompany fiddlers at at fiddle contests. But Dorothy was a real guitar player, so I got drafted to learn how to play the bass. And uh, we decided to go into Paul's saloon on the open mic night and just... Play three songs and knock everybody's socks off just to show that we could. It was kind of audacious of us and bold. And? Um, We worked up three songs and we went in and it was a smash success. And Paul Lampert asked us if we would like to start playing Sunday nights immediately. We said, well, we need to learn some more songs. (laughs) So we took a few weeks and we hungered down and I learned how to play the bass. And, and we learned enough songs to play four sets, although we repeated some towards the end of the night. And we were just off and running, playing once a week. And, um, you know, it caught fire pretty quick, the novelty of the five women playing. And Channel 2 News came and did a piece on us. And Were,
2: were, you, a, uh, were you a bluegrass band at that, at that time?
1: You know the early good old persons. It was interesting. Um, it was hard to categorize at the time. Although I think everything we did would fall in the under the greater umbrella of bluegrass band now, because you know bluegrass has kind of opened up a lot. Um, we played old time songs. We played some Irish music. Um, we Barbara Mendelson, who now is uh, Josie Mendelson. She changed her name. Um, the person who brought me into it played claw hammer banjo and hammered dulcimer and spoons. She's a genius on the spoons. And so, you know, people that were traditional bluegrassers really quibbled at us. You know, you're doing Irish music and you have a claw hammer banjo. That's not bluegrass. And um, we were singing bluegrass songs, but in the wrong keys, you know. And, so, um, and and we all kind of swapped instruments at that time. I remember there were a couple of songs I learned how to play, the claw hammer banjo, and um, uh, old-time songs, one called Didney Ramble. I played I played banjo on that. Played. I played rhythm mandolin, you know, on things. We all tried to play the fiddle. We just, you know, it was a very loose, and open thing. And I started trying to write songs right away because that's what I'd been doing when I was a folk singer in Chicago. And, you know, I had a hard time finding songs that in the bluegrass repertoire that um, were about me and my experience. So pretty early on, I started trying to write songs and uh, it's hard to write a bluegrass song, much harder than it seems at first. It took me a few years <laughs> <laughs> to get, get get a bluegrass song going.
2: Persistence paid off.
1: Yes. Well, I was studying the form, you know, I was I was I was studying fine art painting, I was studying art history, and I think a lot of that um way of learning things transferred over to my learning of bluegrass, you know, I wanted to learn the, the art history of, of bluegrass, you know, who, well, learn about Bill Monroe and, and learn the masters, you know, study the masters first and try and learn to sing like Lester Flat if I could, uh, you know, try and pick up on all those specific bluegrass nuances rather than just singing like a folk singer singing a bluegrass song
2: and and, and th- th- this is sort of a probably a, a good time to to ask you what what was the scene like for women in the uh, uh, in 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 the Bay Area I mean particularly uh, if I recall the, uh, the the good old persons uh, by the time I started listening to GOP uh, you guys weren't what I would really call a a traditional or a classic style bluegrass band what 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 happened during that that time for when you uh, you first got started and uh, and let's say when the band finally hit its stride? Uh, it,
1: it was it was a very traditionally based scene and um, you know there were uh, so you know some bluegrass musicians in the Bay Area were more rigid than others, but the scene had been welcoming to women early on. Barb Bob and Ingrid Fowler were the first musicians to uh, perform at Paul's Saloon and talk Paul Lampert into even having music there. Ingrid Fowler uh, played the fiddle and sang and I think was the front person for that band. That was before my time, before I moved out here. Um, there was a woman named Susie McKee who was performing before I started playing and I went and saw her. Um, Marky Sanders uh, playing mandolin and bass um, you know there there were women, Marky Sanders played with Vernon Ray. There were women playing in the scene in the Bay Area before I got here um it wasn 't super common, but it existed, and the men in the bluegrass scene were were in, for the most part welcoming and encouraging and liked to jam with us and you know, would quibble, but no, you can't do that song in C, that song's played in A, and well, you know, we'd we'd have to argue a little bit about it. But, you know, while um, The the Good Old Persons was forming and coming up with its signature sound, um, we got to go and see Bill Monroe play in San Francisco at least once a year. He would come through on tour. We got to see uh, Ralph Stanley, um, you know, the J.D. Crowe in the New South, We, you know, everybody came through San Francisco and we got to see them play. So, you know, we got to watch traditional bands play, listen to all the records, um, learn the form. But for me, myself, while I was learning as much as I could about bluegrass, I was trying to write my own song. So I was, you know, trying to crack the code of bluegrass, but I was also, um, you know, trying to invent something of my own. And the, the people that got into the good old persons, pretty much every single person that was in the good old persons was coming at it in that same way, wanting to play traditional music, but also wanting to make something of their own. So when we had Sally Van Meter come in to play banjo and dobro, and after a while she stopped playing the banjo because obviously she was a dobro player. obviously. Yeah. You know, she had a voice that was very distinctly her own. Of course, she had listened to other dobro players, but her sound on the dobro was so recognizable and distinctively her own. And the same for John Reichman on the mandolin, who, you know, played a, a wide variety of styles of music, but he started writing his own tunes and he was playing with Tony Rice, you know, for part of the time that he was in The Good Old Persons. and So the band just became a venue for, for creating our own sound, um, combining the influences of different styles of music, but bluegrass-based um, in instrumentation and, you know, and, and in its roots.
2: If you forgive me a question here, I've always been fascinated by one tune. I mean, I was fascinated by a bunch of tunes that you guys recorded, but there was a tune. I wouldn't necessarily call it a gospel tune, but I think it's entitled It's Gonna Rain.
1: Yeah, (laughs) I gotcha.
2: Which was, uh, well, if, if, if I saw, I'm, I'm listening to the lyrics of this thing and, and, and it's been it's pr- probably been like three or four years since the last time I listened to it. But it, it made such an impression on me. So, holy cow, here we are. Uh, there is like nothing optimistic about this tune, inclu- including nuclear holocaust. What is going on here? So I, I'm curious, can, can you uh, can, can you sort of lead me by the hand back and, and, and uh, talk about that tune a little bit?
1: Sure. Um, John Reichman and I have written, you know, a, a pretty couple of handfuls of of songs together over the years that we've been playing together. He joined the Good Old Persons in 1978. So that's a long musical relationship he and I have had. And uh, we uh, wrote It's Gonna Rain together. He had a melody and he, he presented it to me. And I had been thinking about, you know, this kind of (laughs) post-apocalyptic gospel song. Um, You know, it's like, it it was definitely about the state of the environment and, but, you know, trying to have some gospel references uh, and uh, it, you know, between the two of us, it just, it came together very quickly. I, I believe we wrote it talking on the telephone. (laughs) because <laughs> he was uh, up at his house in, in in Marin County and I was at my, I think I was at work and he called me at work. I was working in a clothing store at the time. And uh just pretty quickly there was there were no customers in the store. We just kind of came up with this song. And um it was a, a you know a chilling kind of a thing to write. Uh, well,
2: I, I I can tell you that that from my perspective, I was thinking about climbing into a cave and staying in there for about a year and not peeking outside for fear of what I might find.
1: <laughs> you know, it's environmental. It's it's about nuclear holocaust. It's you know, it's a it's you it you better get right. You know, it's that sort of <laughs> thing. It's you know, run to the rock and hide your face. You know, I mean, there it has gospel references. Um, but it was also a little bit political, and uh, we didn't shy away from that. And um, you know, we didn't shy away from subject matter that was was going to be maybe a little bit um, provocative.
2: And and I'm curious what what was the uh, what was the political scene like in in the Bay Area back then, and did that influence what what you guys were coming out with?
1: Well you know, we, we live in one of the most open-minded places in the country, one could say. And, um, on, on the, you know, forward edge of environmental practices, um, you know, women's rights, safety issues, and still, you know, our, our governor, you know, did the shelter in place and wear a mask quite early on mm-hmm. here. You know, it, The left coast, you know, is kind of in the front end of of a lot of things. And uh, so that made a welcoming environment for us to write our own songs, um, present things that were, you know, outside of the traditions, and to introduce political things and, and, you know, to have women leading and fronting the band and, you know, to do things that might not have, been as successful elsewhere in the country at the time.
2: Now the uh, good old persons had a good, healthy run. I'm, I could spend like five hours talking about the, talking about the the good old persons, and I can tell you also from a, from a personal perspective that. Uh, um, uh, uh, Sally really had a um, you know an, an impact in what I I was doing a- as a dobro player. Uh, her I-, I think on on that album also was uh, crossing the Cumberland's, which is a, a terrific instrumental. But but af- after a good long run, um, all things must come to an end, and 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 the good old persons did and.
1: Reunions, <laughs> uh,
2: <laughs> that, 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 and and there was a, re, a was there a reunion recording later? I, I believe there was, wasn't there?
1: Well, no, um, we haven't ever recorded any of our reunions, but you know we've played at uh, at some festivals and and uh, you know concert venues and had reunion gigs, but uh, we did a a, uh, a live recording that was you know put together from various sources, um, European performances and Canadian performances. There were there was a good uh, well <laughs> of live performances of the band with uh, Sally and John and myself and Bethany Rain playing bass and singing and Paul Shalaski playing fiddle and then Kevin Wimmer playing fiddle. So that was the band from 1980 to 1990. And we did put together uh, a collection of, of live performances called Good and Live. that was on Sugar Hill. That was fun and kind of captured some of the energy of that band.
2: So, um, so the, the, the good old persons uh, uh, stopped playing as, as a unit. How soon before you decided to uh, front your own band under your own name? And how did that come about?
1: Well, um, the you know, little bits at a time, things changed. Um, I started uh, uh, playing with Keith Little and, uh, and John Reichman and Todd Phillips, and we put together a band called The Little Big Band that played for about three years. And that was when I uh, coincided with me getting on the Sugar Hill label. Um, but we never made an album of The Little Big Band, but a lot of the... Uh, material that we developed in that band wound up on the Sugar Hill Records. And then I uh, needed a local band because Keith was living in Nashville and John was living in Vancouver, Canada. And I put together a local band and we were trying to come up with the name of the band and every time we got together to rehearse, I would suggest different names. And and finally, one of the people in the band, and I think it was probably Tom Beckany. The mandolin player said, I think it should just be called the Kathy Kallick Band. And I said, no, no, no. I, I, I think a band should have a name. You know, the bands that, that, you know, Hot Rise and Nashville Bluegrass Band, you know, bands that have names, Johnson Mountain Boys. Um, and the other two people in the band, Amy Stenberg and Avram Siegel, said, no, we, we want to call it the Kathy Kallick Band. And one of them said, you know, if you don't like the name, we'll just get a different guitar player. Begrudgingly <laughs> I went along with it being called
0: the <laughs> Kathy Calic band,
1: and that's been, you know, my my vehicle for performance since I think um, 1996 is when that started, when the album "Call Me a Taxi" came out on on Sugar Hill. And
2: and, and by the way, in the Kathy Callick band, I'm assuming that Kathy Callick signs the paychecks.
1: She does. It's her name on the bank account, but it's a very egalitarian group. All decisions are made by the group. Um, I, I like to have everybody have input on, you know, what, what songs we're going to do. Even the songs I write, you know, I, I make a little demo of a new song and I, I send around these demos to the band, you know, particularly this, this, Current band that we've had together for, well, 11 years now. Our fiddler, Annie Stanitz, lives up in Portland, Oregon. And uh, Greg Booth, banjo and dobro player, lives in Anchorage, Alaska. And our bass player, Carrie Black, was living in Seattle, Washington, but he's moved to the Bay Area. And then Tom Beckany and I live in the Bay Area. So to present new material, I, I often just, you know, I make a little home recording, I send an MP3. I maybe send three songs and go, what do you guys think? And then they weigh in. They go, I like this one the best. I, you know, Greg, he'll often just sit with the one he likes and um, learn how to play it, come up with an intro. He'll send it back to me. Here's your scratch recording with all my dobro parts. What do you think? (laughs) I go, yeah, now it's starting to sound like a song. Well,
2: you know, uh, what what interests uh, um, at least some of our listeners who are – band leaders in, in the making. Uh, y- you just pointed out several challenges uh, you have uh, as a band member, and I'd like to explore that for a bit. Uh, uh, number one, as you mentioned, you've got uh, – you, you, it's really not a, a local gathering. You've got personnel spread all over the place. And, and the other challenge, at least in my mind, in talking to other West Coast musicians, is that you're on the West Coast, and and there's while there certainly is a market uh, on the West Coast, you've got a huge market on the East Coast, which uh, I I know you'd like to take advantage of um, when, whenever possible. So speaking first, I guess of the of your personnel spread out all, all over the place. How do you guys rehearse? Uh, uh, what, 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 if you don't mind me asking, what do you do for those travel expenses like Greg has to incur, coming all the way down from Anchorage? and uh, it's not like you show up one for a three-hour rehearsal and hop back on the plane again.
1: Of course, getting together for rehearsal and developing new material is challenging for us because we have people spread up and down the West Coast. We look at every time we play as a tour for somebody, even if it's Bay Area gigs, at least Annie's flying from Portland, Oregon, and Greg is flying from Anchorage, Alaska. So we try and get those people in early, and then we can have a day or two to get together and rehearse new songs, um, rehearse things that we've been working on, go over and work on the arrangements, and then you know start introducing new songs into performance. Ideally, we would, you know, have, you know, designated rehearsal space and time. But we, it's worked for us um, over the years. You know, if we have festivals on on two weekends, we try and have days in the middle there where we can have good repertoire developing time. And we've sent songs around, we've sent around the recording so Nobody's introducing something that that nobody's heard at all. You know, if, well, that's not true, Annie will spring fiddle tune on us, you know, or maybe she'll present (laughs) three fiddle tunes to us and we'll go, we like that one. Uh, Or, you know, Greg will say, Annie, that tune you played in that jam session at that festival, let's try that one. But, you know, we have to be, we have to seize the moment, and we have to, um, you, you know, make defined times when we will develop new material. And it's been challenging, but it definitely works. And everybody's really good and quick. And we make recordings of the rehearsal so everybody can go away and and work on it. And then when we come back, it's it's getting better and better. Playing on the East Coast is, of course, also really challenging for us, Um we're not well known. We don't get back there on the East Coast often enough to be household names. We've, of course, come to IBMa and showcased and tried to, you know, play as much as we could. Uh, thank goodness for the Boston Bluegrass Union. They've, you know, been supportive of us, and of course, Delaware Valley Carl Goldstein. That, you know, that is such a wonderful festival, and we feel so you know just grateful to be able to come and play that festival and play for people on the east coast and and you know when we come back a second time people remember us and you know it's it's hard for us to do but but we love to do it so you know we'll continue to try and come back as much as we can
2: and ha- have you made inroads to um, other festivals in the east coast or is it uh, predominantly those those two festivals
1: question. Have we made inroads? <laughs> well, we'll just see. Um, you know, we've played other things over the years, uh, but, you know, festivals come and go. We, we, we It's unprecedented in our lifetime. And, um, you know, everybody is just getting through this as best they can. I know a lot of musicians who are doing their home, you know, homemade shows in their living room where they put it out on the internet and um, virtual little concerts and stuff like that. You know, my band can't do anything like that. We're just too far apart. Um, And, you know, there's, there isn't yet a, a way to have five people in different locations all play on their computers and have it work out. Of course, you know, and it's been interesting, um, for me, personally, I've learned that I'm a very social musician. What I love, the zing for me, is playing music with other people. And, you know, but for all these decades, between performances, I'll play guitar um, with my metronome, you know, to just practice uh, bass runs and G runs and, and play in time and I'll play songs I'm learning and I'll play guitar and sing to write new songs but it's always with the goal of playing music with other people and with that taken out of it it the zing is gone you know I just I really want to play music with other people
2: i'm i'm curious how do you guys record um do do you 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 like to play music with other people do you bring everyone into a, a singular location to record
1: okay everybody and and usually we have some we have some concerts or festivals or something in the bay area and we'll book studio time in the bay area and Annie and Greg will just you know live here while we <laughs> while we work on a record come and go you know it, it doesn't all happen in one fell swoop, you know, we, we have uh, recording sessions. Um, we we'll go in for three days, four days, and, uh, and try and get everything um, live with everybody in the same room. And that is maybe the first thing we'll do as we come back, before we can play you know, concert halls or house concerts or festivals or whatever, we will be able to go into the recording studio, and I've talked with Dave Luke, our recording engineer, and before we perform, we may just bring Greg and Annie to town, and the five of us start working on a new record. That that seems like something that could be manageable at some time, but it'll have to be safe for them to get on an airplane, and we're not quite there yet.
2: Yeah, just to see their shining faces.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And um you know, we have a we have a recording uh budget that comes from all the all the CDs that are sold and all the royalties and everything just goes back into our account. Okay, we're now saving up for the next next project and that, you know, would afford us bringing um Greg and Annie to town. Nobody would have to miss work to come to town because they're not working. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, Annie is teaching, you know, people are teaching online. Everybody's doing that and that's keeping everybody going. But, you know, there's, there's no performance outside of, uh, you know, outside of that going on right now. It's a very Mm -hmm. weird time. You know, um, uh,
2: a uh, bit of a, a, a digression here. California may be a, a, a contiguous state, but it's as diverse in the south as it is in the north. And I'm curious, uh, your your experience, is the scene in the south the same uh, or pretty similar to what you're exposed to in the, in the Bay Area?
1: I don't think it is at all. Uh, there have never been any... Um you know, strong, consistent music venues in Southern California. Um, well, there was McCabe's in L.A., which was a, a music store that had a very, very small performance room in the back. It was sort of like a house concert. I think they could smish about 50 people in there. But... um there, there's not been a consistent music scene down there that I've been able to discern. And there's nothing like the Grass Valley Festival. There are some festivals that have, you know, uh, come and gone and lasted for a few years in Southern California, but it's a very different scene down there. It's, You know, it's very, very spread out. Um, and, you know, northern, the Bay Area has, uh, you know, a hundred lively thriving bluegrass musicians who want to get together and play all the time. Mm. And, and there are many house concerts and, um, jam sessions and, um, square dances, you know, there's all, all different kinds of things going on. And when we go down and play in Southern California, it's a, it's a tour and there are some venues, there are some great venues, um, you know, and there's a, a couple of colleges that have concerts. But, you know, it's a long drive from one thing to another, and there's no central scene. You know, there's nobody saying, hey, that's great. You're down here. Let's have a music party. Let's get, you know, 25 other musicians over. It, it just, things like that don't seem to happen in Southern California. Mm. Um, you know, the the Bay Area scene has just continued to be this thriving, flourishing hotbed of up and coming Hot musicians um, You know We have a huge crop Of kids and teenagers And people in their 20s Coming up now All in the Bay Area And uh, I don't know Maybe it's in the water In the air I don't know what Goes on up here but, but it's very Lively thriving scene
2: You know You had mentioned The kids and teens In the area And, and that brings up Another topic I, I, I wanted to touch on Before Before uh, before you have to go, and and that is uh, your role as an educator and and in other um, uh, uh, musical projects outside of the Kathy Kallick Band. W- would you like to chat about that a bit?
1: A musical project that I've been working on over the last uh, little while is a follow-up to a tribute album that I made to my mom, Maybe 15, 16 years ago, I made an album called My Mother's Voice in which I recorded a bunch of songs that she had performed. And um, after that and after she passed away, some recordings of her surfaced and we found more and more of these great recordings of her. So I've started this project in which I will um, have some of her recordings and then me covering some more songs that she that she used to sing. And I've got maybe six or seven tracks for that. So that's an outside of the band project, though the band did play um, footprints in the snow. And that was really fun. And I've recorded a track with Molly Tuttle and a track with Jim Hurst, a track with Tristan Scroggins um, and a track with Mike Compton and Joe Newbery. So that project is coming together. And again, that is something where if, If I had the opportunity, I would go into the recording studio here, which, um, you know, would be a very safe um, situation to get together and play music. That would be great.
2: And uh, do do you have a, uh, I'm sorry, do you have a working title for that project?
1: It's called What Are They Doing in Heaven Today? Hmm. Because I have a beautiful version of my mother singing that song or something like that. Howard, you're the first person to know outside of, you know, the people I hang out with. It, it's its public debut.
2: Well, everyone's going to know, or anyone, everyone that cares is going to know.
1: <laughs> so that's that's the project I'm working on that's, uh, you know, outside of the band. And the whole thing of being an educator, you know, has really been a process for me. And when you said that as an educator, I was like, oh, that's a very lofty term. Um but I have, you know, grown into being comfortable being a teacher, to, uh, being at, you know, music programs like, um, Puget Sound Guitar Workshop and our California Bluegrass Association has a good music program before the festival, and that's where a lot of these young kids are, are coming up. And, um, Augusta, you know, music heritage program, um, Rocky Grass Academy. I love to go to these places. It's different every time. I went and taught at Mike Compton's uh, Monroe Mandolin Camp last fall. And uh, I'd like to think I could just develop my teaching program and then just go around and do it. But every single situation, I'm called upon to teach a different aspect of what I do. (laughs) So I have to reinvent the wheel Every time and all summer long, you know, until this summer, I was, of course, scheduled to be at a lot of these music programs. And I learned so much about myself and the music that I play and what matters to me and what I want to convey um, from teaching, you know, from having to put things into a teachable form. You know, what do I want to teach people about playing guitar or Harmony singing or being a bluegrass singer or being in a band or songwriting.
2: Let me ask you again about one of my favorite um, projects, um, and I saw you do live, I think it was maybe last year or maybe it was two years ago. And I don't remember if it was at uh, IBMA or Joe Val, but it was the tribute to Vern and Ray.
1: Yes. Well, the reason it's hard for you to remember which is because we did that at both places. So, so you may have seen both. Um, Lori Lewis and I, you know, she's the first person I played music with playing bluegrass. Um, starting out in that very first old good old persons, could we come together and work up three songs? <laughs> and Laurie and I have continued to really enjoy playing music together this whole time. Um, I go sing on her records, she comes and sings on my records. Um, We do a lot of teaching together. And um, we were very influenced by Vern and Ray. Um, She played some bass with Vern's band. I played with Ray Park a couple of times. We, We saw them live, we knew them, we idolized them. And we learned a lot of their songs. And when Vern Williams died, I called her up and we cried on the phone and she said, come over, let's just go through and sing all the Vern and Ray songs. And I went over to her house and she'd collected, you know, all the songs and made a song book. And we, we just sat and played them all and, and decided, you know, we should, we should do this as a tribute. So we, uh, we did a couple of performances and put together a band and then decided to make the record um, saying, well, someone's going to make a, a tribute to Vernon Ray. It might as well be us.
2: <laughs> Is there anything that you would like to touch upon that, uh, that we haven't?
1: Well, one of the things that I have been involved in online, because you asked about that. Uh, is the um, California Bluegrass Association didn't host, you didn't have their festival this year, of course, but the Kathy Kallick Band was hired to play the festival. And what the CBA did was they did online webcasts um, called Turn Your Radio Online. (laughs) Clever. Yeah. And we put together um, five songs from a performance in Berkeley and Irene Young was the videographer and they're all songs from the most recent Kathy Callick Band album called Horrible World and um, that, you know, packaged five songs is available uh, on the CBA Turn Your Radio Online webcast and um, I, I it's a long broadcast, but you know, about two hours in, here comes the Kathy Callic band, and we played five songs from *Horrible World*, and um, then we played the song *Time*, the title song mm. from from the album called *Time*, and and something else, one other thing. So that's a, that's one online thing that we've done, and we had this performance from September nineteenth, two thousand eighteen that we, you know, could pull these, these tracks from. Um, and, you know, that, that was really fun for us. That album, Horrible World, um, you know, came out in the fall of 2018 and we're, we were just kind of still riding high on it and finally learned all the songs and just about ready to start thinking about the new um, recording project when, you know, the shutdown happened and yep. we haven't been able to do that. Yeah.
2: Well, um, if folks want to learn more about Kathy Kalick and the Kathy Kallick band, where can they get information?
1: They should go to our website, which is com.
2: How convenient.
1: Yeah. And it's easy for me to remember. And, um, You could learn pretty much anything you want to know about the band right there. Kathy,
2: thank you so much for your time. Um, And uh, I want you guys to stay safe. And uh, I trust that we'll see you uh, on the East Coast um, sooner than later.
1: I hope so. I really hope so, Howard. And you too. Stay safe. It's been really fun to talk to
0: you. That was Kathy Kalick talking with Howard Parker about her early years in music, California bluegrass, her time with the good old persons, and her years as the band leader of the Kathy Kallick Band. To learn more, visit www.kathycalick.com. That's spelled K-A-T-H-Y-K-A-L-L-I-C-K. You can hear other episodes of Bluegrass Stories on SoundCloud, Facebook, Apple and Google Podcasts, and at katiedaily.com. I'm Katie Daly. Thanks for listening to Bluegrass Stories.